Okay. Well, welcome everybody to Sunday School. Good morning to you from California. Today is a special day. It's a review day for the lower Sunday School classes, but in the adult Sunday School class, we're going to be looking at a special presentation from Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis. You know Ken Ham, president of that organization, a frequent speaker. The topic of this video presentation that we're going to be looking at is how ought we to go about sharing the gospel in our culture, our specific culture. Ken Ham is going to be, in this presentation, comparing two sermons given in the book of Acts, a sermon that's reported in Acts chapter 2, and then the sermon that's reported in Acts chapter 17, and then ask the question, are we in America going about gospel proclamation the right way or the best way? And you're going to notice from this video presentation that Ken Ham makes comment on a number of issues that we've talked about throughout our Sunday school classes. Things um, especially that have to do with the Genesis account of creation and whether we as Christians really believe that account. And now many of you, some of you, were not part of Sunday school for that discussion when we talked about the creation account and why we can believe what the Bible says, why we don't need to change it. That's understandable because we went through that material almost four years ago now. You can still find the recordings of it on the Calvary webpage. You can find the, the audio files for that. I recommend that. I think you'll find that very helpful. But just be aware that we, we won't have time to get back into that discussion fully today. One thing I did want to do as preparation for this video is actually go through Acts chapter 17 with you. Just reading it. We had a chance to go through most of Acts chapter 2 the term, in terms of the sermon that's presented there, but we never got a chance to go through the sermon in Acts 17. So please open your Bibles to Acts 17, and we'll read through that. So that's Acts 17, verses 16 to 33. <clears throat> so just to give you the context of this, Acts 17, verses 16 to 33, Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's just been chased out of Thessalonica and Berea, and he's forced to go by himself to the city of Athens. And while he's there, Athens in, in Greece, so he's been forced out of Macedonia down to Athens. While he's there, he notices the great idolatry of the city. And that's where we pick up in verse 16. So follow along with me, Acts 17, verse 16 to 33. We'll read through this, this sermon that appears here. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, waiting for his companions, uh, Timothy and Silas, the spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. 
the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, so keep this passage in mind as we now turn to listen to Ken Ham's presentation. This video is about 40 minutes long. It's actually two shorter videos stitched together. So you'll notice this stitching a little bit because there's music that appears right in the middle of it. That's originally where there was a break between the two videos, but there's not going to be a break in our video, so don't be alarmed by the music that you hear. You can follow along in your student guides as an area for taking notes. Otherwise, please watch the video, and afterwards, I'll mention a few points, and then if there's still time, we'll, um, we'll take some questions and comments. So let's cue the video now, Again, it's about 40 minutes. The Bible instructs Christians to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But in our Western world, people are not responding to the gospel today as they did in the past. So what has changed? What we're going to find out in this session is that there's a big difference between an Acts 2 type culture and an Acts 17 one. And our Western world today has become much more like an Acts 17 type culture. How do we reach such people with the message of the gospel? Well, the Bible instructs us how to do that. We're going to learn how to effectively preach the gospel to people today. Our heart at Answers in Genesis is evangelism. As I've often said to people, there's no point in converting people to be creationists because creationists will uh, end up in hell just like an atheist if they don't believe and trust in the Creator as Lord and Savior. And so our heart is to preach the gospel and see people one to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this particular session, I want to share with you my heart concerning evangelism and how do we evangelize a secularized culture? In Psalm 11.3, we read, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I reminded people about a barn, a barn that had a foundation that was collapsing. And when the foundation collapsed, the structure came down. 
And I said, that collapsing barn to me represents the collapse of Christian morality, the Christian worldview in our Western world, and certainly in America, the greatest Christianized nation on earth, as we see those moral issues like gay marriage and abortion, and we see Christian symbols being thrown out of public places. We see the culture changing, and really that's what that collapsing barn is symbolic of. And to explain what's happened, we understand that there are really only two religions in the world. You either start with God's word or you start with man's word. And that was the choice right back there in Genesis chapter 3. Trust God's word, don't eat of the tree. Or what was the temptation? You can become as gods. You can decide truth for yourself. No, trust yourself. It's man who determines truth. And on the basis of those two different religions, two different starting points, starting with God's word or man's word, we have two different worldviews. One, a worldview of Christian absolutes. The other, a worldview of moral relativism. But what's happened in our Western world, in this era of history, there's been an attack on the foundation, the foundation of the authority of the Word of God. This nation started primarily with uh, founding fathers, many of whom were Christians, but they built their morality on the Bible. Its starting point was really, in that sense, the Bible. That's why a Christian worldview permeated uh, this culture. But we've had generations now, right through our Western world, have been told that the history in the Bible, particularly that history in Genesis 1 to 11, is not true. Evolution is true. Millions of years is true. That history in Genesis 1 to 11 is not true. Then subsequent generations have started to recognize if that history in Genesis is not true, then neither is the gospel that's based in that history. And what we see happening in our Western world is a collapse of Christian morality and increase in moral relativism because there's been a change foundationally from God's word to man's word. In this culture, in the education system, in the court system, in the government, and sadly, even in much of the church, the starting point has changed from God's word to man's word. And we're seeing a change in this nation, a change from a predominantly Christian worldview to one now that's predominantly secular with moral relativism pervading the culture. And I summed it up with this castle diagram, and that is that here's the problem. We have the foundation of God's word and the structure of Christianity and the gospel doctrines built on that. Foundation of man's word, secular humanism, moral relativism that comes out of that. There's been an attack. The secularists have really attacked God's word. But that attack has occurred ever since Genesis 3, really. God's words come under attack since Genesis 3. But in this era of history, it's particularly been in Genesis 1 to 11. Much of the church has even said, we don't really need that part of the Bible or it doesn't matter. You don't have to take it as literal history. We'll keep the rest of God's word and keep that structure. But like that barn, if we don't have the whole foundation, the structural collapse. And then we look up here and we say, well, look at all the problems in the culture. But they're not the problems. In essence, they're the symptoms of the problem. And for all the millions of dollars that the church, God's people, have spent in this nation trying to fight those issues, ultimately, from a big-picture perspective in the nation, it hasn't worked. And why not? Because, you see, the secularists captured generations of hearts and minds, changed their hearts and minds in regard to what they believe about the Word of God, to believe it's man that should be a starting point, thus changed their worldview, which changed the culture. And what's much of the church tried to do? We tried to go in there and change the culture. But the Bible doesn't say go into all the world and change the culture. The Bible says go into all the world and what? Preach the gospel and make disciples. In other words, Here's the thing. The secularists understand if you capture the hearts and minds of generations of children and give them a different foundation and, and therefore a different worldview, they'll change the culture. 
what should the church be doing? We should have been raising up generations standing on the authority of the word of God who knew how to defend the faith, who would be the salt and light in the culture. But instead, the secularists have captured them and we've helped that change. We've let them do it. Basically, we handed our children, generations of children, over to the world and, and we said, you can believe what the world teaches, that's okay, as long as you trust in Jesus, Johnny. And eventually, what do we see happening? Right now, the statistics are at least... Two-thirds of young people, when they reach the, uh, the college age in our churches, are walking away from the church. And if this continues, we're going to lose this culture. And we're losing it right now. Now, we, you might say, okay, well then what we need to do is capture their hearts and minds. That's right. That's what we need to do. The secularists know, capture their hearts and minds, and we'll capture the culture. Well, we need to go out there and preach the gospel and, 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 and see it, 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 these people saved and wonder the Lord to build their thinking on the Bible, have a Christian worldview so that they will change the culture. That's right. But then I'm going to ask you this. Okay, I'm going to go and preach the gospel. What is the gospel? You might say, oh, well, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died on a cross, raised from the dead. That's true. That's true. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died on a cross, raised from the dead. But isn't it also true that you can't understand the good news of the gospel unless you understand the bad news in Genesis? The bad news concerning a perfect world marred by sin, that the first man, Adam, rebelled, and thus sin came into the world, and thus death is a consequence. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus Christ stepped into history. In other words, the history in Genesis 1 to 11 is foundational to understanding the good news. Think about this for a moment. Imagine you were in a church where in that particular church they said, we don't believe Genesis, doesn't matter anyway, but we want you to go out and evangelize the culture. We want to evangelize the generations of kids in this culture. So go out there and tell them about Jesus, but don't mention Genesis. You're not allowed to mention Genesis because we don't believe Genesis. Uh, but go out there and tell them about Jesus. Okay. You sinner, you you're a sinner. You, you, you need the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner. Why am I a sinner? Because you're a sinner. Where'd that come from? Don't worry about that. Just believe it. You're a sinner. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Oh, he did? Yeah. Why do you do that? Because of your sin. Well, where did sin come from? Don't worry about that. Just, just believe it. How do you preach the gospel without that history in Genesis 1 to 11? I mean, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5, when Paul's talking about the gospel, uh, the, the good news, and talking about the resurrection, and talking about the last Adam, he's going back to Genesis, because that history there is foundational to all of that. And, you know, as a communicator, the first thing you have to um, make sure of is that the words you use, they understand and define them the same way you do. You say, well, that's obvious. Oh, is it, is it really? I mean, do people really think about that? See, I come originally from Australia, and we speak English. Americans speak mm, sort of English, a form of it anyway. But one of the things I learned was we can use the same words in the English language, but in a different culture, they can have different definitions, and so you will not communicate if you don't understand that. I remember one stage when we first moved over here to America, I told somebody I had a flat battery. A flat battery? And they wanted to know if I ran over it. I said, no, I left the lights on. He said, oh, you have a dead battery. Dead? It wasn't alive. How could it die? I... You know, you're not going to communicate if you don't understand the words they use in those situations. And, of course, then there's the embarrassing ones, like uh, at the time, this was a number of years ago, of course, when we had little children, and somebody said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm nursing our baby. <laughs> then there was this silence for a moment on the end of the phone. You know, I was talking on the telephone. Nursing a baby. Yes. Oh. <laughs> See, in Australia, nursing a baby means holding a baby. So I, I was just saying, I'm holding the baby. 
Over here, I found out it doesn't mean that. <laughs> you know, if you're going to say to somebody the word God, if they don't understand the word the way you do, you're not going to communicate. Or if you say sin, and they don't understand sin the way you do, you're not going to communicate. You see, when I'm thinking about communicating the gospel, I like to think of communicating the gospel in regard to three basic aspects. First of all, the foundational aspect. There's a foundational history that Christ is creator, sin into the world, death as a result of sin. Actually, that's foundational to understanding why the Son of God stepped into history to be Jesus, the God-man, to die on a cross because death was a penalty for sin, raised from the dead. That's the power of the gospel. And we also know it's a groaning world now because of sin. So one day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth to come. The foundational knowledge, the power of the gospel, and the hope of the gospel. If I can say this, I, I want us to think carefully about this for a moment. I would suggest to you that most of the church, in fact, in our Western world, in fact, around the world, concentrates mainly on the power and the hope of the gospel, not the foundational aspects. For instance, there was a, a, a series of books. You know, w w when we talk about eschatology, now, as soon as I start talking about eschatology, some people get nervous. You're going to come out and tell us a particular view of eschatology and so on. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that because I, I, I just never deal with controversial issues. And so you don't have to worry about that. But there was a particular book series uh, out uh, called the Left Behind series. H how many of you purchased maybe the Left Behind series or even read the Left Behind series? Yeah, there's hands all over the rooms. And, you know, millions of Americans purchased that series. I'm not saying you should have, shouldn't have. It's just a matter of history, okay? But, you know, millions did purchase that series, which is about a particular view of eschatology. But most of those millions didn't buy creation books. Why? You know, one of the things I found in the church, and I found this in America, and I, I believe it's true in a, in a Western world, people in the church seem more interested in end times than in the beginning. In fact, one of the things I've noticed in America is that there are many churches to become a member of a church. You have to agree to a particular view of eschatology for that particular church. Now, I'm not saying a church shouldn't have a particular view of eschatology. I mean, eschatology is important too. But you, you have to have a particular, have to agree to a particular view of eschatology. But when it comes to Genesis, as long as you believe God created, why is it we put an emphasis on you must have a particular view of eschatology, but when it comes to Genesis, you can believe in millions of years, evolution, doesn't matter, we're not sure what it means, as long as you believe God created eschatology, oh, you've got to have a particular view. Think about that for a moment. Now, I, I do that for this reason. You see, one of the things that I was asked once when I was on radio, it was a Presbyterian minister, actually, and he said to me, now, you agree that... The church can have different views of eschatology. There's pre-mill, R-mill, post-mill, and so on. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, and there's different views of Genesis, theistic evolution, gap theory, day-age theory, and so on. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, it's the same thing. I said, no, it's not. He said, why not? I said, because except for some extreme views of eschatology, for the, for the main views of eschatology, like pre-mill, post-mill, R-mill, you know, in most instances, really people... Uh, are looking at scripture they have a high view of scripture the authority of scripture and they're trying to argue from scripture you know understanding israel daniel ezekiel revelation and so on and looking at scripture and and and, and trying to come to some conclusions there but the reason that people have different views of genesis is because they're starting outside of the bible with the secular views of this age and reinterpreting Genesis and coming up with those different positions to impose the idea of millions of years and so on on the Bible. 
And so in that sense, if we stand back and think about it, here's a problem. We often find in the church in America, we're prepared to take a particular view of eschatology and say, that's important, but when it comes to Genesis, it doesn't matter. And yet, I would suggest to you that it's because we're not taking a particular stand on Genesis, we're actually unlocking that door to undermine biblical authority in a way that different views of eschatology, by and large, are not. Think about that for a moment. Because you see, when you're taking the pagan religion of the age and using that to, to reinterpret Genesis, that's different than arguing from Scripture and trying to come to some conclusions about things. You're taking ideas outside the Bible and deliberately changing the Word of God. I think it's a massive problem. And I think it's really symptomatic of the fact that the church by and large does not understand the foundational issues in our culture and have helped that foundational change. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we read this. We preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block, but under the Greeks foolishness. I want to look at some big picture aspects here tonight regarding the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the cross was foolishness to the Greeks, but what to the Jews? Stumbling block. What to the Greeks? Foolishness. I want to look at this in a particular way. We're going to look at two sermons. Two sermons where the gospel was preached, number one to the Jews, number two to the Greeks. I want to look at those, Peter taking the gospel to the Jews, Paul taking the gospel to the Greeks. I want to stand back, look at it from a big picture perspective and apply it to our culture in this era of history. And you know, when I do that, I have people afterwards who tell me, it was like a light bulb going off my head and I, and I sat there and thought, how come we've never seen this before and it's so obvious? When we go to Acts chapter 2, we have Peter here on the day of Pentecost preaching a very powerful sermon. But you can imagine, you know, he's very bold. You can imagine maybe standing on the temple steps or whatever as, as they're coming and, and basically what he said was this, to paraphrase it. You crucified the Son of God. You nailed the Messiah on the cross. You need to repent of your sin. Look what you've done. And God raised him from the dead. And you know, when they heard this, as we read in Acts 2, they were cut to the heart and said, you know, what, what shall we do? And Peter went on to say, repent and so on. And you know what happened? The Bible uh, tells us when, when they were told to be saved and so on, that 3,000 souls were saved. And you say, wow, wouldn't I like to see a crusade like that in my area uh, this week? We used to see crusades like that. We used to see evangelistic campaigns like that. We, we, we've seen great revivals in America, in, in the East in the past, and other places. There's been great revivals in the past. Over in England and, and, and across the United Kingdom and other places of Europe, there's been times where there's been great revivals. But people, we don't see those sort of things today. In fact, I also suggest this to you. Even some of the big evangelistic crusades of the past where, where thousands were, were truly converted and they touched the cultures that, that, uh, that they were ministering to, we don't see the same sort of responses today. In fact, most of those who go to such evangelistic crusades already have a church background. Many of those who go forward are for recommitment. It's a different sort of response today. So here's what we have to ask ourselves. Okay, so Peter preached... This message of the gospel, I call it the Acts 2 approach to evangelism. And I want to say this. 
I would suggest to you that most of what we do in our churches today, our evangelistic campaigns, even our Easter pageants, Christmas pageants, our Sunday school material, Bible study material, youth group material, whatever it is, is basically an Acts 2 approach to evangelism. And what was this Acts 2 approach? Who was Peter really preaching to? Well, he was preaching to mainly Jews or those convinced of or very familiar with the Jewish religion. Let me ask you a question. At that stage in their history, did they believe in God? When Peter said to that group of people, God, did he have to define God or could he assume they were thinking of the God of creation, the God that he uh, understood? He didn't have to define God, did he? If he said sin, you're, you're sinners, did he have to define sin? They had the law of Moses. They knew what sin was. Sin was idolatry, taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Sin was stealing, murder, adultery. They knew what sin was. They didn't have a problem with the foundational knowledge. They didn't have a problem with that history in Genesis. They believed in Adam and Eve and the fall, by and large. They had the right starting point, which put them on the right road, but their stumbling block was the message of the cross. And I like to put it this way. Peter was preaching to people who already had a foundation to understand the gospel. It'd be like coming in to build a beautiful auditorium like this and somebody already put the foundation there. I remember when they were building the Creation Museum and it was just a piece of property, first of all, and then they seemed to spend months. I don't know what they were doing. They were digging holes and having fun. They were laying the foundation. I thought, this is going to take forever. And suddenly one day I went there and the day before, I didn't see anything above ground. And that, then that day, I suddenly saw all the steel structure going up. Once the foundation's there, the structure can go up very quickly. Peter was coming into a group that had the foundation. So from a human perspective, he didn't have to deal with the foundational aspects. He had to deal with the structure that Jesus is the Messiah. To me, that's analogous to this. In 1959, when I was a little boy... Very little boy. Very, 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 very little boy. In 1959 in Australia, a very famous evangelist came to Australia. What was his name? Billy Graham. Now, again, I'm only talking about this from a perspective of history. I know that people can have different theological views and different issues and so on, but this is from a perspective of history. There is no doubt in Australia's history, it's, it's said that those early crusades in 59 in Sydney and Melbourne that attracted thousands and thousands of people actually touched the culture in a way that's never happened since. In fact, it's been said this is the closest Australia ever came to revival. Australia's never had revival. I mean, I know that Americans pride themselves on the fact that their founding fathers had great convictions. I tell people our founding fathers had great convictions. Um, but they were convictions of a different sort, and they even went to jail for their convictions, if you can understand that. But you see... What was his message? It was mainly an Acts 2 message. It was sort of, if you like, a simple, basic presentation of the power and the hope of the gospel. You're a sinner. Trust in Jesus. He died on the cross for you. You need to put your faith and trust in him. And you know what? People were truly converted. He came back and did some other crusades and so on. But you know what's interesting? Those sorts of crusades today don't touch the culture in Australia. In fact, even if they have such, most of those who go forward already for just for recommitment... Why was there such a difference in 1959 and the early 60s than today? You know, when I was a little boy back then, went to school, my father was a principal of schools in Australia. And at that stage in our history, they had prayer on assembly before they went into the classroom and they even recited the Lord's Prayer so we knew we were praying to the God of the Bible. See, Australia inherited the British system and so we, we built our morality on the Bible, even though it wasn't a Christian nation. 
Not only that, but the teachers would read through the Bible during the year. So all the students would get to hear about Adam and Eve and sin and hear about the Israelites and hear about Jesus on the cross, the babe in a manger and so on. Here's what I want to suggest to us. Back in the 50s, 60s, Australia was an Acts 2 type culture. So an Acts 2 approach to evangelism from a human perspective, it works. People understood. But if you go to Australia today, it's like America, England, Europe. Creation is basically thrown out of the schools. He used to teach creation in the schools in Australia. The Bible, by and large, has been eliminated from the schools. They, they don't have Bible readings like they used to. They don't have prayer and assembly like they used to. In fact, back in the 50s and 60s, if you said to students in Australia, God, most would think the God of the Bible. But if you say God today, it's which God? You mean a Muslim God, a Hindu God, a Shinto God, a Buddhist concept of God, a New Age God? What God are you talking about? It's a different culture. I suggest to you that an Acts 2 approach doesn't work in Australia now like it used to generations ago because Australia is no longer an Acts 2 culture. Australia, I believe, has become an Acts 17 culture. When Paul went to Mars Hill, Athens, and he met there with the Greek philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection, what was the response? Huh? What, 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 what does this babbler want to say? What is this all about? The response was foolishness. Remember, the preaching of the cross was what to the Jews? A stumbling block. But what to the Greeks? Foolishness. Why the difference? Well, you have to understand, who was he preaching to? Well, the Greek philosophers here, well, what did they believe? Actually, the Epicureans, they believed that everything evolved from the earth, that sensuous pleasure was the chief good of existence and so on. They were evolutionists. See, Darwin didn't invent the idea of evolution. He popularized a particular view of it. The Greeks believed in many gods, and the gods evolved, and we evolved. The Stoics were pantheists. Pantheism is another form of evolutionism. You know what that reminded me of when I went to Japan? I've been to Japan a couple of times, and the first time I went to Japan, my Japanese translator sat down with me and he said, look, when you say the word God, I can't just translate it as God because over here with their Shinto religion and many gods, they'll just see it as another God like all their other gods. I'm going to have to define who God is and define the God of, of, of the Bible. God that made all things and upholds all things by the power of his word and, and separate from the creation and so on. I thought, man, these are going to be long lectures. And then he said, if you tell them they're sinners, how will they know what that is? This is not a Christian country. It hasn't had a Christian basis. Also, evolution is taught as fact in the schools, just like it is, you know, all around the world. The problem is they don't have that foundation in God's word. They don't have that history in Genesis. They will not understand. And this is what he said to me. Unless you start at the beginning and define all your terms, they will not understand. See, I was going to a culture that had no foundation to understand the gospel. Here's what I want us to think about. Generations ago, our Western world was primarily an Acts 2 type culture one way or another. And so evangelists could come in and preach the message of the cross and people would understand. People, I want to jump ahead a little here, but America used to be an Acts 2 type culture. And one of the problems we've got is today... Some of the older generation in the church grew up in more of an Acts 2 type culture, which is why they don't understand what's happening nor the approach that's needed. You see, for some of the older generation, to them, when they grew up in more of an Acts 2 type Christianized culture, 
And they might have believed in evolution of millions of years, but they're truly Christian, trusting in Christ. It didn't affect their salvation. And so here we are today, and we're saying, you've got to understand something. It didn't affect your salvation, but you know what it did affect? How the next generation views Scripture. And they don't understand what's happened. They're a part of helping the change of the foundation. Maybe unwittingly in many instances. America used to be an Acts 2 type culture. Creation in the school, Bible in the school, prayer in the school. A lot of kids went to church programs. And so you could come in and say, you sinner, repent of your sin. You talk, talk about God, they would hear the God of the Bible. But people, America has changed. Like the whole Western world has changed. It, it's, it's no longer an Acts 2 culture. It's increasingly what? An Acts 17 culture. It's your own creation, Bible, prayer, out of the public schools. You say, like in Australia, you say in America now to the public school students, God, which God? A Muslim God? Buddhist God? Hindu God? Which God? Years ago, generations ago, you said God, people would automatically think, even in the public schools, the God of the Bible. And see, when you compare those two different starting points, a creation-based culture, they understand the terms. Evolution-based culture, don't understand the terms. To one, the message of the cross is a stumbling block. But to the other, it's foolishness. We have to understand something. The Greeks were on a whole different road, a whole different starting point, a whole different worldview. That road does not lead up to the message of the cross. And if you want that Greek to understand the message of the cross, you realize you've got to do something. You've got to get him off the wrong road and give him a whole new starting point, give him the, the, the right history, the right foundation, to get him on the right road that will lead up to the message of the cross. Do you know that's exactly what Paul did? Oh, it's phenomenal. It's all there. He looked around. I perceive you're a very religious culture, and so it's all their, their gods and, 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 and their temples. When I was over in the British Museum in London, one of the things I wanted to do was go in there and get a picture of the Greek gods. Here they are, the Greek gods. They're not very powerful. They couldn't even get out of the case. <laughs> There's the Greek gods. And so here's Paul, and he looks around. I was passing through and found this altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you who this one is. He is the real God. He's the God that made the world. He's the creator. He doesn't need things like your gods. Your gods dwell in temples made with hands. No, no, not the real God. He defined God. Oh, reminded me of my Japanese translator. And he made of one blood. You're all related because Paul understood that history. He'll go back to Adam and Eve. That's why we're all sinners. He was laying the foundation. You know what that reminds me of? Reminds me of a mission organization called New Tribes Mission. How many of you have heard of New Tribes Mission? They've developed a chronological approach to teaching because they found when they went into a pagan culture and did what most missionary colleges, Bible colleges, seminaries tell people to do today train our missionaries here in america to do train our pastors to do oh you start in the new testament with matthew mark luke and john and so on and you tell them about jesus and just go right in there and boldly proclaim christ they thought they had all these responses to when they actually carefully looked at it and analyzed it they found out those natives didn't have a clue what they were doing they just did what the missionaries wanted them to do so then they realized they had to have a different approach so they did something so radical it'll blow you up your seats they decided to start at the beginning what a concept. And they decided to present the gospel the way God does it in the Bible. Well, who would have ever thought of that idea? You know, when you buy a book to read, what do you do? You just read the last chapter. Who cares about the rest of the book? 
You rent a movie to watch a murder mystery like Sherlock Holmes. What do you do? You go straight to the end to see who done it. What's the point of watching the rest? You say, that's stupid. You've got to start at the beginning. Oh, why is it most Christians in our churches today read their Bibles starting at the end? We're more concerned about the end things, by the way, than we are about the beginning. And yet it's the beginning where we've lost biblical authority in our culture and in our church. See, what Paul was doing in Acts 17 was taking them off that wrong road, giving them a whole new beginning, the right start. When Paul did this, then what did he do? Then he presented the Acts 2 message, the message of the cross. Talked about the resurrection. And look what happened. Three different responses. Some mocked like last time, but some said, we'll hear you again. Their hearts were opened and some believed. Wow. Now, here's the thing that really burdens me. I look at that and I say, that is incredible. Paul was going to outright pagans and some were converted. When we had 300 atheists as one group come to the Creation Museum, we knew you weren't going to get mass conversions on that day (laughs) because we we understand the nature of who they are. But you know what? They heard God's word and they heard the gospel and we don't know how God will work on their hearts and minds, but it's so difficult to, to, to minister to those people. They're so hardened. And they actively suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're very difficult to witness to. Wow. Paul saw conversions. God obviously is the one that opened their heart and raised them from the dead. I say that to you for this reason. Do you know what many seminary professors, Bible college professors in this nation tell their students? I've heard it myself. And in fact, not that long ago, I picked up a little devotional booklet that's printed for a particular group of churches. Um, I found this one in the Michigan area, actually, for some of the Reformed churches. Oh, and I read one of the devotions. I just felt like crying. Look what it says. Paul came to Corinth speaking the gospel in simple terms. He had just journeyed there from Athens where he had drawn on his education to try to communicate the gospel in the style of a philosopher. The result, the great missionary fell flat on his face. I can picture him entering into his diary. Don't ever try this again. The cross doesn't need my verbal decorations. Oh, Paul was so unsuccessful. People, that's what some seminary professors are telling students in America. Don't use the method Paul used in Acts 17. He didn't get many responses. Use the method in Acts 2. The method in Acts 2 requires an Acts 2 type culture to understand it. Paul was phenomenally successful. Do you know what Paul had to do? Using the terms Greeks and Jews as types, he had to turn Greeks into Jews. He was preaching people who had the wrong foundation. He had to take out the wrong foundation. It was like coming in to build a building like this. Somebody put the foundation there. It was the wrong one. We're going to dig it all up and start all over again. It's a much more difficult task. See, start to think about this. Generations ago, when America was more like the Jews, our whole Western world was to one degree or another, preached the message of the cross, people by and large would understand. But you come into the present world where our culture is much more like the Greeks. Whole generations brought up in an education system devoid of the knowledge of God. If anything, Christianity, the Bible is taught against, mocked, scoffed, openly mocked in our culture. They're taught about many gods, And you preach the message of the cross and it's foolishness under them. Remember from one of the other sessions where I quoted President Obama. And one of the mantras of President Obama in 2009, 2010, 
Whatever we once were, we are no longer. We're no longer just a Christian nation. We're also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, a nation of non-believers. We know that the president is saying we no longer build our thinking on the Bible. We have a different starting point because he defines marriage as you can have it between a man and a man, a woman and a woman, and he, he actually declares that we need to support that. So we know what he's saying. There's a change. But what he's really saying too, it's a change from one God to many gods. In fact, in Newsweek, April 2009, in the article in Newsweek that we had on the front cover, The Decline and Fall of Christian America, they made this statement. The present in this sense is less about the death of God and more about the birth of many gods. Do you know what they're really saying? Whatever we once were, we're no, no longer. It was one nation under God, but now it's many gods. We're no longer an Acts 2 culture, we're an Acts 17 culture. Whole generations of kids now are going to the Greek schools. They've thrown God, the Bible, prayer out. They threw Christianity out, replaced it with the religion of naturalism. 90% of kids from church homes go to the Greek schools. And the Jews, if you like, as types from our churches are being turned into Greeks. And yet, what we're doing as a church through our Sunday school literature, Bible study literature, evangelistic campaigns, our Bible tracts that we have, our Easter pageants, Christmas pageants, through most of our thrust as a church, we're not approaching them as Greeks, we're approaching them as what? Jews. That's why I've said over and over again, we have a problem. A lot of our Sunday school literature, youth group literature, Bible study literature, we teach Bible stories. All these wonderful stories in the Bible, but they go to a Greek education system, most of them, where they're taught, here's the real history of the world, millions of years, evolution, Big Bang, the Bible's not true, never was a global flood. They're being turned into Greeks, and instead of teaching them how to defend their faith, giving them answers, teaching the Bible as a real book of history that connects to reality, giving them that history, making sure they got the right foundation, their hearts and minds are being captured by the Greeks, turned into Greeks. And we keep approaching them as Jews and wonder why we're losing them. You know, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a defense or to give an answer. We're not teaching apologetics. The Greeks are teaching our kids apologetics. They're teaching them, here's the reasons to believe in millions of years. Here's the reasons to believe in evolution. Here's all the reasons the Bible's not true. What do we do? Here's his stories, trust in Jesus. The Greeks are changing their foundation from God's word to man's word. And what are we doing? Oh, that's okay. You can believe in that. Trust in Jesus. You know what the Creation Museum and the Answers in Genesis ministry is all about? It's actually to take Greeks and turn them into Jews. It's to de-Greekize them. You might say, there's no word de-Greekize. So what? I made it up. I like that word. Here's what's happened. Generations of our kids, our whole culture, all of us have been Greekized, and we need to de-Greekize. We need to be taking people off the wrong road and giving them the right starting point, putting them on the right road so they'll understand the message of the cross. And people, it's got to start in our homes. It's got to start in our churches. See, we've got a problem. The culture as a whole has become so much more Greek than like the Jews. But we've got a bigger problem than that. We look out there and say, oh, look at all the problems in the world. No, no, no. And you know what we should be saying? 
Look at the problem in the church. The church is not touching the culture like it used to. The church is not ministering to the Greeks like we used to because we've allowed the Greeks to invade the church. And you know what? One of the biggest problems we've got, most of the people sitting in our churches in America, even our conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing, fundamental, if you want to call them that, churches are Greeks. You know how I know that? Because I get into many of those churches and I speak. And you know what the people come up and say to me? Well, what about carbon dating? But does it really matter what you believe about the days of creation? We're a conservative church here and we're against abortion and we're against gay marriage. But, but, but does it really matter what you believe about dinosaurs and the Big Bang? And They're Greeks. They're fighting the symptoms and yet they don't understand the foundations being changed. By the way, it's a bigger problem than all of that. It's that most of our pastors are Greek to one degree or another. Some are much more Greek than others. But the bigger problem than that is most of our Bible college professors, seminary professors, Christian college professors are ardent Greeks. Producing pastors who think like Greeks. Continuing an approach to evangelism that's just approaching a culture as if they're Jews. You see what we've... Oh, it's more important to talk about end times. It's more important to talk about things at the end of the Bible. Genesis doesn't matter. And that's where we've lost the foundation. That's where we have lost the authority of Scripture. This is where the attack occurred. You know, when Billy Graham retired, and there were news reports about this on the BBC, CNN, and so on, I've had people say to me, who do you think is going to be the next Billy Graham? And here's my answer to that. He would represent to me an Acts 2 approach to evangelism. But an Acts 2 approach to evangelism really only works from a human perspective. I understand God's sovereign, he's in control, but in an Acts 2 culture. America has very much become an Acts 17 culture. I don't believe you'll see another evangelist like that raise up in this culture as it is today. Because really when he retired, to me, in a sense, it represents the end of the ear of the Jews because now we're in the ear of the Greeks. All right. Let's uh, transition back here. All right. So I'd like to make a few comments on what you just listened to. Of course, there's a lot in that video that we could speak, at, speak about at length. But I hope you caught the, the fundamental idea presented in this video is that we as believers need to make sure that we're declaring a gospel to people that they can actually understand. As the biblical foundation is lacking more and more in America, we will often need to reestablish for people a biblical foundation and explain fundamental Bible truths so that we're actually on the same page. Who is God? Why do we owe him worship? What is sin? What is salvation? Because without this, as Ken Ham explains, we make it very easy for people to dismiss the gospel as irrelevant. And if even, even if we do find that someone believes in the things that we're saying, agrees with them, we still need to be careful because that person's definition of those truths in their mind might be different from what the Bible actually says. So we need to make sure that they actually understand what we're saying to them. Now, as you listen to this, perhaps you thought or a critic might remark of what Kevin Ham said. 
that Kent Ham is basically advocating for a belief in young earth creationism as a requirement of salvation. But I think he would deny that. In fact, he says as much in the beginning of the video. But clearly we must be sensitive to the understanding and background of those to whom we speak. And I think actually it goes beyond whether if someone needs an Acts 2 type of evangelism or Acts 17 type of evangelism, really the more that we find out about a person and what he thinks and understands, the more nuanced ought to be our, uh, our testimony to them of the gospel. Because you want to find out what are the specific fortresses that this person has in his heart that he has set up against the truth. I need to tear those down with the scriptures. You want to find out what are the idols that he worships, that he clings to. You need to expose those idols for what they are, as false, as destructive, so that they can see it for themselves, so they can repent, and they can be saved. I think of that verse from Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where Paul exhorts, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, we don't know everybody super intimately upon first meeting them, so we're going to have to have somewhat general approaches um, when we first talk with people. And I think what Ken Ham is, is calling for here is wise. We need to be aware that our culture is more and more not with a biblical worldview, so we need to keep that in mind. But as we find more and more about each person, we should respond appropriately. I'm not saying we change the message. We can never remove the offense of the cross, nor can we ourselves open spiritually blind eyes. But if we are to be faithful witnesses of God, we must make sure that the message we declare is something people can understand and appreciate. Now, sometimes I think we comfort ourselves with verses like Isaiah 55, 11, which says, you know, God's word never goes out and it comes back void. And we declare the gospel a certain way, and we just say, well, you know what? God will have to take care of it. God's word never goes out and comes back void. Well, first of all, that verse is taken out of context, as you've probably um, heard me say before. But second of all, we do have an obligation not merely to repeat what the Bible says, but to explain it so that people can actually understand it. And that's gonna, that explanation is going to change depending on our audience. On that basis of their understanding, we plead with them and persuade them to believe in Christ. Now, one other thing I wanted to say, really a question I want to ask, does it really matter how eloquent or how well-reasoned you are as a speaker when you share the gospel with someone? What do you think? Does it matter how eloquent or well-reasoned you are as a speaker? On the one hand, no, because God is the one who actually changes hearts. God is sovereign. No one will be saved unless God draws him. And that's a great comfort when things don't come out of our mouths perfectly. But on the other hand, it does matter because we have an obligation and responsibility to be as faithful a witness as possible. Therefore, we should always be learning. We should be preparing. We should be improving. Consider would we ever accept this from a Christian handyman? He's doing some work for us and we say, and he says, you know, I didn't do a great job on your repair, but God is sovereign, so you don't have to worry. No, we wouldn't accept that. 
We'd say God is sovereign, but you have a responsibility to do a competent and faithful job. Or in a similar way, would we ever excuse a pastor from preaching in a clear, engaging, and persuasive way if he said, well, God says it's more about, or God says it's not about eloquence, it's about his power. We wouldn't accept that. We would say, don't you care about the flock? Speak the best way you can. Improve as a speaker so that we can be as edified as possible. So it is with us as God's gospel heralds. We are to be as faithful as we can to our task to proclaim God's truth. We need to learn God's truth better. We need to have answers to common objections that, or issues that people raise. We need to learn from our mistakes and failures. Yes, God is sovereign. He has total power. We are to trust in him, not rely on ourselves. We are to pray. But we must recognize our responsibility. We must be faithful. So I hope you see that we need to take the exhortations in this video from Ken Ham very seriously. Okay, I have maybe five minutes. What other comments or questions do you have based on what I've shared with you and what you saw in the video? Any thoughts? Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think it is a it is a really good reminder. It's very insightful about how we share the gospel. Yeah, definitely. What else? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you bring up another good point. I mean, that's kind of the other aspect of this video that um, that's worth talking about, how the church has become so accepting on various views of creation. And I know that this is something that maybe even people at Calvary are still working through, but it is kind of like this wound that has been ignored in Christ's body or the church. And that is that we don't realize how important it is that we let the Bible be the authority. And I think there are plenty of people who say, oh, but I do let the Bible be the authority, but they don't realize how they're actually, as Ken explains, they're actually allowing the, the apparent authority of man's wisdom to change the way they interpret the Bible. Again, this is something we talk about at length in the lessons that we do on creation. Again, you can find those on the website, but it is important, not to the point of you got to be a young earth creationist to be saved, but when we treat this as, as a non-important issue, what we really do is compromise the authority of scripture. And that's going to have implications. What else?
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. You're, you're really showing even experientially how what, what Ken has spoken about in this video to be true, which is that people do come with preconceived notions about what the Bible says or about God or about life. Like, uh, you know, sometimes we hear people say, well, how could God let, how could a good God let these things happen? You know, these terrible things happen in the world. There are assumptions being made in that statement that need to kind of be teased out. There's an assumption of, oh, we deserve a certain thing. And because God's not doing this, he, he's, a, he's a bad God. But we, those kinds of preconceived notions, those components of a worldview, they do need correcting. Or else when you share something about the gospel, it's already going to seem totally irrelevant to them. Yeah, so thanks for sharing that. There are other things we could say. I appreciate your comments. But that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, we're going to take a... We're going to go back to the New Testament epistles. We're going to take a closer look at the issue of faith and works as they are presented in the epistles. But let's pray and ask the Lord to um, make us faithful as witnesses to be wise and to be discerning when it comes to sharing the gospel with those around us. Our God, we do thank you for the, this exhortation from Ken and for this discussion now. Lord, we do realize that ultimately it's you who save and we're, we're, we give you all the praise for that because there's no power in us. All the power is in you. But God, you have ordained certain means and you've called us to be faithful. And Lord, we do want to be faithful. We want people to be saved. We want people to be delivered out of the, the ignorant darkness in which they're in, that self-destructive way. God, so prepare us to be those testimonies. Give us, give us that discerning mind so that we can we can see where that, that foundation that's so important for the gospel is lacking. We can correct those things. We can show them, Lord, that we all have an obligation to you. You are the creator. You are God. You deserve all worship. But we, since the beginning, have sinned against you and have come under your wrath. But thank you for Jesus Christ who saves us. And God, I pray that you would use us and that you would work in New Jersey and in our country to draw many people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. I'll see you next week.